So we are finishing up our study in the book of Acts this morning. We have only scratched the surface, though, of God's message to us in this book, but it must come to an end because we've just been going through a snapshot of the entire book. So we're stopping today in Acts chapter 18, but please realize there's way more in here worth studying, and maybe we'll come back to it at a later time. But I do want you to be aware that the next few weeks we're starting a new series talking about leadership, created to lead, and we're going to have some guest speakers coming in about over the next three or four weeks. So I want to invite you to come and be a part of that. I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's going to be very practical to you. So I hope you'll join us beginning next week as we look at that subject of created to lead. But we are in Acts 18 this morning. Last week we looked at Paul while he was in Athens. He's confronted with all of these gods And we see how he interacted with the people there and how he was able to bring the gospel message to them in a way that made sense. So at the end of Acts 17, he's in Athens. The beginning of 18, he moves in to Corinth. Corinth was a major city that had trade coming in from all sides. So it was very diverse. A lot of different people from different backgrounds. A lot of different religious beliefs. One of the reasons Paul would have gone there is for that very reason. A large metropolitan area with a lot of people who needed to learn about Jesus. So he arrives in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And as we learn in this passage today, he actually spends 18 months there. Interacting with the people there. Dialoguing with them. Now Corinth isn't the only place in Acts that we see mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. One of the great things about connecting the dots between Acts and all of Paul's letters is that they strengthen the reliability of each other. So, Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. But we also know that he wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians, right? When Paul visits Philippi in the book of Acts, he also wrote a letter to the people in Philippi. When he visits Thessalonica... He also wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. So when you see the book of Acts, none of these places are in a vacuum. All right? They strengthen the reliability of Paul's letters, and Paul's letters strengthen the historical reliability of the book of Acts. So here we go, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Pretend like you're in Corinth, okay? Here we go. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to a place called Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. And tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus 
the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he arrives in Corinth and he meets two people, Aquila and Priscilla. And we hear about them throughout Paul's journeys. Two companions that become very close friends of Paul. Now they're forced to go to Corinth because they had been kicked out of Rome. It mentions there for us that Claudius, who happened to be the emperor at this time, forced as many Jews as possible to leave Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla are exiled, and they move into Corinth, and they meet Paul. Paul is connected to them because of the trade that they are involved in, which is tent making. What I want you to see this morning, first and foremost, is that Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, You and I, every one of us, need to be leveraging our work for the gospel. Now Luke mentions here, one of the few times that we actually find out what Luke's, not Luke, what Paul's profession is, okay? Paul is a missionary, but he also has a job during the week. Now this is mentioned for a couple of reasons here. Number one, it was very important as Paul traveled from place to place that people understood that he was making a living apart from his preaching of the gospel. Because what would have happened in a place like Corinth is that there would have been religious teachers coming through the area, philosophers teaching different religions, and they would have expected payment for their services. But Paul wanted everybody to know that when he was talking about Jesus, he wasn't coming there to receive any financial incentive from them, which is why he had this profession on the side a tent maker. I also believe Luke mentions that for you and for me. Because for too long, many of us have thought the only people that are qualified to teach about Jesus are preachers and ministers. And what Luke is showing us here is that couldn't be any further from the truth. You, in your workplace, have opportunities with people that I will never have opportunities with. So when Paul is in Corinth constructing these tents, people from all walks of life would come to him. And as he's constructing these tents, as he's selling these tents, it was opportunities for Paul to dialogue with these people, let them know about the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the events that happened in Corinth, the Isthmian Games, it was an athletic and a music competition. People would come from all over to Corinth to see this event. And those that traveled from outside Corinth would need a tent. So they would come to Paul and other tent makers in the city. And it gave Paul an opportunity to interact with people from all different walks of life. Not because he was a missionary, but because he was a tent maker. Your sphere of influence in your workplace is your mission field. 
you have access to people and conversations that pastors and ministers and missionaries will not have access to. So your job is much more than paying the bills and providing for your family. It is the place where God has uniquely put you to make people aware of Jesus. Now what if you don't have a job? What if you're just a student? The high school and university setting is the ultimate place for meeting people with diverse beliefs and opinions than you. You will never find anywhere more than a university campus with people that have diverse beliefs about God and religion. So if you're a student, your mission field is your school or your university. Now I think some of you in here are thinking, well what about the retired individual? And I have a word for you as well. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever see anything about people spending the last 15, 20, 25 years of their life coasting until God calls them home. Now, you're looking at me and you're thinking, well, that's really easy for you to say. You didn't work 40 years like me. And you're right, I didn't. But what God has been teaching me is that retirement is the ultimate opportunity for you to leverage your resources your time, and your money for the church and the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean you can't go on vacation. Doesn't mean you can't play golf. But if all of your time and your resources and your money are being spent solely on your own pursuits and pleasures, you are missing the opportunity that God has given you in retirement. I want to read to you a quote that's probably going to convict you but I think it's worth reading nonetheless. John Piper, many of you know him. He, he has a tendency to be kind of black and white. Okay, The mindset is that we must reward ourselves in this life for the long years of labor. Eternal rest and joy after death is an irrelevant consideration. What a strange reward for a Christian to set his sights on. Twenty years of leisure while living in the midst of the last days of infinite consequence for millions of unreached people. What a tragic way to finish the last lap before entering the presence of the king who finished his so differently. But when the world sees millions of, quote, retired Christians pouring out the last drops of their lives with joy for the sake of the unreached peoples and with a view towards heaven, then the supremacy of God will shine. The reality is, throughout the Old Testament, we find so many leaders in the nation of Israel who were just getting started at age 100, age 80. So retired person in here, I want you to know that God wants to use you. He doesn't want lukewarm commitment to his mission or to his church. He wants you all in. Student, he wants you all in. Person in the workforce still, he wants you all in, not just to your job, but to his mission. If Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived, also had an occupation where he leveraged his job for the gospel, 
how much more should you and I? Number two, we also see that for Paul, as he was in Corinth, conversation was key to everything that he did. Research is now telling us that it takes more people to reach one person for the gospel than it ever has before. So, in other words, whereas 30 years ago it might have taken 10 people for one person to get saved, research is now telling us it's taking closer to 50 people for one person to come to faith in Christ. So our efforts, we're not getting as much fruit and we're also not sharing as much. That's what that research is telling us. Part of the problem with this, one of the reasons I think this is happening is, we've moved away from a society in which people can converse about the Bible. So maybe as a child or as a teenager, you learned a lot of memory verses to share with people in order for them to come to faith in Christ. Maybe you learned a gospel presentation to share with your friend or your coworker. And those are all good things. We should absolutely do those things. But as less and less people are familiar with what's in this book, we have to adapt the way we're going to communicate with them. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean we use the Bible any less. It doesn't mean we stop sharing our faith. What it means is we adapt the way that we're doing it. So what Paul did when he went into the synagogue, Luke tells us he reasoned And he persuaded his audience. In order to do those two things, you must have a conversation with somebody. A dialogue. Listening has never been more important as we talk with people about Christ than it is right now. People really aren't that concerned with our presentations. They want to know if we care And if we're listening to what they're telling us. So we ask questions. We take somebody for coffee. We ask questions like, why do you not believe Jesus is the only way? And then we listen. And then based on what they've told us, we then take the truths of Scripture and find a way to apply it to their situation. I just finished reading a book a few weeks ago. It's called Saving Truth. The premise of the book is that we have moved, as Western culture, away from a postmodern way of thinking to a post-truth way of thinking. Now let me tell you what that means. Postmodern, which is where we've been the last 20 or 30 years, was the idea that truth is relative. What is truth for me might not be truth for you. That's postmodern. The point in this book is we're now in a post-truth world, which means you might have the truth, but the person you're talking to doesn't care. In other words, they're admitting to you that your truth might be right, but I just don't care. The premise of the book is that's where we're moving towards in society today. And he says one of the things that we've confused in Western culture, is the concepts of freedom and the concept of autonomy. For instance, you and I as Americans have freedom in this country to pursue education, 
to get whatever job we want, to buy a house that we want that we can afford, to worship wherever we would like. But we don't have freedom to drive 100 miles an hour on the interstate, to eliminate places of worship that we disagree with, to purchase a home that we cannot afford. See, freedom always comes with restrictions. Autonomy, on the other hand, means a law unto yourself. So in other words, you do whatever you want to do no matter what. That is autonomy. But autonomy always leads to chaos. So when you're dialoguing with somebody and they tell you that, you know, the main reason they can't come to faith in Christ is they don't want to give up their way of life. They don't want to give up the way they've been doing things for so long. They don't want to lose freedom. But they're not talking about freedom. Because freedom always has boundaries and restrictions. They're talking about autonomy. I only share this with you to get you to think about the issues that people are wrestling with as they think about whether or not they want to follow Christ. It's not always easy to persuade and reason with people in today's world. Listen to this quote by G.K. Chesterton. I think it's going to kind of help you understand what I'm talking about. This is what he says. Every act of will is an act of self-limitation. To desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. In other words, when people come to you and say, following Christ is going to require them to give up all the freedoms that they've pursued for so long, what they don't realize is they're already enslaved to the very things they think they're free to. Well, how do we find out these kind of things about people? This isn't just something that we can find out in a one-time sitting. This takes an investment. This takes time. This takes getting messy with people, having relationships with people, where you might find out things that you wished you didn't know. All right? But we have to converse with people. We have to talk to them. You know, as we continue on in this passage, what we see is that Paul goes into the synagogue, okay? And Luke tells us that he shakes the garments out before he leaves. In other words, he's rejected. We just talked about this this morning when Jesus and his disciples, when they went from town to town, when the message was rejected, what did they do? They shook the dirt off their feet as a sign that those people did not want the message. This has Old Testament origins. It goes all the way back to Nehemiah. We see the people of God doing this regularly. So Paul goes to the synagogue to his own people, to the Jews, an articulate, intelligent, well-spoken man goes to his own people and is rejected. But then Luke tells us he goes next door to the house of a man who is not a Jew, but is a sympathizer. And he continues sharing the good news. 
You see, your failures in sharing the good news do not limit God. Don't miss the irony here. Paul, the Jew, goes to the synagogue, is rejected, leaves, goes to a Gentile's house, and then Luke tells us the ruler of the synagogue leaves the synagogue, goes to the Gentile's house, and his entire house believes. Your failures do not limit God. He works in the midst of our failures. You see, it would have been real easy throughout Paul's life for him to have given up because he is regularly beaten, abused, imprisoned, thrown out for teaching about Jesus. There was a book written not long ago by a lady named Angela Duckworth. Okay? Now, she was a consultant, and she quit her job as a consultant and went to teach 7th grade math in New York City public schools. And what she noticed as she was teaching these students is that those that were successful made good grades in her class. It was not always tied to their IQ. So this intrigued her. So she quit her job as a teacher. and She went to study psychology. She went all over the country asking this question. Why is it that people in their jobs or in school succeed? What is that it factor that causes people to succeed? She went to West Point and studied cadets. She studied rookie teachers in some of the most difficult school systems across the country. She went to the National Spelling Bee and observed and predicted which ones would make it onto the next rounds. And this is what she found when she concluded her research. That the number one indicator of success in a job or in school is not IQ, it's not good looks, it's not your social intelligence, it's grit. Now, what is grit? It's the passion and the perseverance to pursue a long-term goal. This is what Paul had. Now, in the book, she doesn't use Paul as a test case. But I'm telling you this morning, I'm going to add a chapter, okay? And Paul's going to be in it. Because nobody had more grit the passion and perseverance to pursue a long-term goal in the New Testament than Paul. Because everywhere he went, he went up against rejection and objection, but he pursued and he stayed with it. And by the end of Paul's time as a missionary, more people came to know Christ than any other missionary at any other time in history. What I want us to take away from this, is that the church of Jesus Christ should be the grittiest organization on the planet. We will fail more times than we want to admit. We will try ideas that absolutely bomb. We will develop programs that we think millions of people will come to and then five people will come to. 
But if we allow things like that to get us off the mission, then we're not gritty at all. So we persevere. We have passion for letting people know about the good news of Jesus Christ. Some ideas are going to be good. Some ideas are going to be bad. Let's just all swallow our pride and admit that there's no idea that's new under the sun and that what we think is individual and created only by us was done somewhere else many years ago. But Jesus will use us to reach people in this city if we'll be gritty. Last thing I want you to see, the vision that Paul receives at the end of this passage He had been frustrated. He had come up against so much failure. So he gets a vision from God. I want to read it to you. This is what the vision is. He speaks directly to Paul. And he says, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I want you to take this vision that Paul received and I want you to personalize it. I want you to make it God's words to you this morning. God has a plan for people in this city to come to know him. So as you go to the prisons every week, and you think no one is listening, remember, I have many in this people. I have many in this city who are my people. As you go to feed the homeless, there are many in this city who are my people. As we go into the Ninth Ward, as we go to Holly Grove and Central City, and we're scared out of our mind, we realize that there are many people in this city who are my people. This vision is not just for Paul. It's for you and I. God, I believe, wants to use the people of God to create a movement of God here in New Orleans. The Spirit of God using the people of God to create a movement of God right here where we are. So if you're thinking God doesn't have a mission for you while you are in New Orleans, let me ask you the difficult question. Why are you here? Because God never intends anybody to go anywhere without being on mission. So this vision that Paul gets here is a vision for you and I as we reach those in our community. That the child in generational poverty will realize the importance of education and rise up and change life for him and his family forever. That the educational system that sometimes passes kids on from grade to grade in order to keep their job would realize that it's more than keeping your job. That the petty 
arguments and disputes that we see where people get shot night after night. These are not political issues, brothers and sisters. These are image of God issues. And as believers in Jesus Christ, it is the church's job to address these issues. Because if we don't truly believe that every single person is created in God's image, then we will turn a blind eye to the issues right in front of us. So I want you to take this vision that Paul receives. I want you to commit it to memory. I want you to write it down on an index card. Put it in the dash of your car. Hang it on your refrigerator. And every time you walk out the door of your house, remember this phrase that Paul gets. The people in this city could belong to God. But it's our job to take the message to them. All the things that I've just mentioned, we could bring in the most eloquent speaker, an unlimited amount of money and resources, and guess what? Lives could still never be changed. Because every issue, generational poverty, education, crime, gangs, drugs, every one of them starts right here. And the only one that can fix a heart issue is Jesus himself. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for this this story of Paul going to a new place and using his giftedness in order to share the good news. God, he experienced failures. He experienced so much pain and heartbreak, but yet he stayed the course. God, I know for one that I have experienced heartbreak in this city. I have experienced failure. But God, I commit to you this morning that I'm I'm pursuing you and I'm going to persevere. So God, I pray this morning that you would give us a vision for reaching this city with the gospel. That it would not be our own ideas of what would work, but that it would truly be from you. God, search our hearts. Help us to be a people who love the city where we live. God, I pray that this text would speak to our hearts and to our minds, that we would not just leave here and be unchanged, but that we would meditate on it and be changed by it. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We believe that about this Word. We confess that to you this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.